welcome to the CRV Podcast. My name is Jeff Wright, and I am one of the regular contributors to the CRV website. On this episode, I am talking to Dr. Owen Strand about the state of masculinity in evangelicalism and the SBC. Dr. Strand is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he is also Director of the Center for Public Theology, as well as Director of the Residency PhD Program. He is also a Senior Fellow of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, where he was President until 2016. Dr. Strand has written a number of books, all of them excellent, and you can check the show notes for links to some of his most recent works. All right, let's get started on my conversation with Dr. Strand. Dr. Owen Strand, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me, friend. Hey, it's a, it is an honor. Uh, I and the, the other people on the CRV website so love and appreciate your work. So again, thank you for carving the time out. Uh, I want to tell you a funny story, if you don't mind, though, about when, when you truly hit my radar as just a, a Southern Baptist pastor out there in the land of the pews. Yes. Uh, 2018, we're in Dallas, Texas, and uh, M- the NBA is my my love language when it comes to sports. And I mm-hmm. can't remember if you put it on Twitter or a friend of mine told me, but you were somewhere, I think, <laughs> and Dennis Smith Jr. walked in. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, now I know who Dennis Smith Jr. is. I'm hoping he capitalizes on his tremendous upside, but I don't feel like I would recognize him if you walked into a convenience store I was in. And I'll be honest, I felt like you were infringing on my territory. (laughs) Yeah, man. When, when I was in, uh, when I was in Dallas for the SBC in 2018, like you said, June, 2018, um, I went to Shake Shack in Dallas. This was before Kansas city had a Shake Shack. And, uh, so there was one not far from where the convention, the Southern Baptist convention was being held. And I found my way there. Let's just put it that way. And, and then, and when I'm in there, I'm like, that dude looks familiar. And yes, it was Dennis Smith Jr. And I got a picture with him. He was very low key. Uh, he was cool. And then the crazy thing is, um, the next night, a little embarrassed to say this in public, but hey, let's go ahead with it. Uh, I go back to Shake Shack and there was another NBA player there who played for UT Austin. So really? Yeah, man, I can't remember. Jordan, somebody who was a big man, but, uh, two nights in a row, I not only ate Shake Shack, Again, a little embarrassing, but saw NBA players there and got pictures with them. Is that not weird? Well, I'll just be honest with you. I think somehow your presence, the SBC, it must have worked out for the hand of favor to land on the city of Dallas for them to get Luka Doncic. (laughs) And so I'm just going to assume that this was some miraculous providence where the Lord wanted to show favor to Dallas via Shake Shack and and your work. (laughs) I've never looked at it that way. And yet now I see even my Shake Shack visits providentially. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's easier to see the hand of the Lord, you know, His providence in in uh, reflection, right? And so that's what's going on. That's right. Well, uh, you know, this the the lighter hearted stuff aside, uh, I wanted to talk to you about kind of the state of manhood in evangelicalism. I so appreciate your work on all kinds of stuff on that topic, uh, human sexuality and. Uh, masculinity, the relationship between the sexes. I think the easiest way for for me to introduce this to our listeners is that you wrote a very moving tribute to John Powell for Providence Magazine back in July of this year. Mm -hmm. And you you honored him so well, uh, but you honored him particularly by highlighting the way he models godly, robust, 
vibrant masculinity. Uh, it, I mean, would you say that that's, I'm assuming so, but would you say that was the aim of the piece to honor him as a man? It was, yes, that's exactly right, Jeff. Um, I, I was not super tight with John Powell. We were in Southern together some years back, but I always liked John. We got on quite well. And I admired him, not just when we were on the campus of Southern, but beyond that, when I saw what he was doing as a young pastor, um, as a guy who tried to exemplify the model of manhood that we had both learned um, on that campus. And John was a guy who no one would deny was a manly guy, but he was always also a kind man. So that always stood out to me because he was the kind of guy who was trying to disciple Boyce College students, for example, when I was a professor there. He, he he taught a bunch of young guys to change the oil in their car. A student posted a reflection about him after he tragically passed some weeks ago. And that was exactly the kind of story that you would expect to pop up about John Powell. You didn't know about it, but it didn't surprise you one bit when you saw it, because he wasn't just trying to be a generic Christian. He was trying to be a godly man and then raise up godly men. And uh, so I tried to do my very small part to honor him for Providence Magazine. Um, that, that, is, that is what is so desperately needed today, that kind of man, a, a man who, yes, is extremely glad to be a Christian, just in general, saved by divine grace in the name of Jesus Christ, but then one who works very hard uh, to raise up godly men behind him. There are just a lot of young men today, Jeff, who have the age and the body of a man, but the identity of a boy. It's, it's, an, it's an epidemic today. And I don't mean it in a, in a snarky, torch the other side, dismiss them and, and burn them down way. I mean it as essentially a sociological fact mm. because these young men have not been trained. We tend to fault them. Online discourse tends to fault them. And this group that we can talk about, they have their sins just as we all do. But in many, many cases, uh, the starting point for the issues that the devil so many young men is that they have had no training. So John was an example of a guy who tried to train young men, and I know both of us would have that burden as well. Well, listener, you if you haven't read this, you need to track it down. It's for Providence Magazine, which is ProvidenceMag.com, I believe. But Google will find it for you. It's called On the Pastor Dying Young, Remembering John Powell. Uh, you get to some of the stuff you've already just introduced us to. So uh, if, if you would you know, give me the chance to just read a, a small section uh, that I thought captured this so well. You said that John used his manly strength and aggressiveness for the good of others, not against them. He was Christ-like in this way. And and honestly, that's a provocative sentence because, mm. uh, I mean, you know this subject more than I do, but it, it's almost sort of cultural fact that aggression is a problem. Mm -hmm. And yet I find myself agreeing with you about its goodness. Men on average have a thousand percent more testosterone than women. That's not that's not the province of scientists that they can talk about it. That's established biological fact. And I think we should rightly class that kind of statistic under what we call general revelation. Hmm. In other words, that's not in the Bible. There's not a Bible verse that says men on average have a thousand percent more testosterone than women. But the body that God has made, the, the, the creative design, what Paul calls nature, Phusis in the Greek or Phusin in Romans 126 and elsewhere, that, that's what you're seeing in that stat, Jeff. You're seeing nature. You're seeing how God has made a man 
and how God has made a woman. And of course, in a post-fall world, testosterone has to absolutely come under the dominion of grace. It must. We as Christians are not those who are saying any sign of manly assertiveness or aggression we see, we approve of. Not in the least. Nonetheless, we are also not those who say any sign of manly assertiveness or aggression, and we need to swoop on that little boy or that young man or that man and dose him up and slow him down into a catatonic state. Some boys need medication. Some boys need medical help in that way. They really do. A lot don't. A lot today need a father, and they need a church culture that trains them as a godly man in the image of Christ, and they need outlets for their assertiveness and their natural innate aggression, and they need, to some degree, sports or activities that allow them to get outside and bang into things and that kind of thing, take risks. And yet, like you alluded to, Jeff, our society is not set up these days for men. Uh, the, the philosopher and cultural critic, critic Irving Kristol, uh, famously said in the mid-20th century, so this is 50 years ago, roughly, that America had transitioned from, I'm paraphrasing, a heroic society to a managerial one, effectively. And, and that's true. Now, my point back is not that, you know, if you're sitting in an office listening to this podcast on a computer, typing in a spreadsheet, you should rip your shirt off as a man and, you know, blast out the, the, the nearest window and tear a tree down with your hands. That's not necessarily <laughs> the takeaway. But it is to say that we have to recognize that the biblical worldview is set to that heroic cast, in my view, and men are to lead in that mission of disciple-making and God-glorification. And everything about our culture, Jeff, it's not just specific commentary about manhood that downplays it. Everything about our culture, uh, or so much about it, works against the grain of rightly aggressive manhood. Well, and I I so appreciate maybe the the most beautiful paragraph, um, encouraging paragraph in that piece you wrote, sort of from a theological lens, is to your point that you just made that this is not about bare chested, chest beating manhood, but that manhood is manhood for others, which uh, is a quotation from your piece. You you point to Eric Liddell, uh, William Wilberforce, King David and his men, and you say that. Godly biblical manhood is seen whenever a man rejects the allurements of sin, trusts Christ, disdains passivity, self-focus, and childishness of modern Western culture in order to kill his sin, pursue purity, build a family as God calls him, develop a vocation as a provider, and by divine grace, strengthen and protect his home, church, and community. You finish up with that's what John Powell stood for. It's that that telos orientation of what manhood is for that I think uh, you have been particularly helpful in but if I could follow up, I, I really want to know what you think the state of manhood is among evangelicals compared to the broader culture, because that, it's not as simple in my mind as saying one versus the other. On one hand, I think evangelicals have a lot of resources in the faith to pursue godly manhood. Uh, but I'll also just admit that there are times when I see a Jordan Peterson or a Joe Rogan and I think, you know, sometimes the unbelievers uh, maybe, I don't, want to, I don't want that to be an endorsement of those guys. Right. But they get some stuff right. And clearly people from every walk of life are responding to their work. So how would you sort out the state of evangelicalism compared over and against the broader American or Western culture? That's a fascinating and, and incisive question. Really good question. 
in my view. I think I think evangelicalism, and here I'm thinking in particular of let's say conservative evangelicalism. I think it's done decently well in terms of the theory of the sexes. So, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the Bible Church World, the PCA, conservative Anglicanism. You know, we could, we could go a lot of different places. Non-denominational evangelicalism as a separate institution or reality. These sectors of the conservative evangelical world, in many cases, understand that there are two sexes and that men are called to be pastors and elders and in some form, leaders in the home. So there's, I would say, solid, perhaps decent theorizing about manhood and womanhood in a lot of our sectors. And in some, some corners of the conservative evangelical world, there's been some very good instruction and, and theologizing. Where I think there is a real lack of teaching, though, uh, is not only in a really rich, joyful, teleological vision of manhood and womanhood, gospel-centered, uh, which, which I think is lacking in tons of places. What is especially lacking, though, is training in practical manhood and practical womanhood, mm. or, or you could call it just day-to-day manhood and day-to-day womanhood. And that's where figures like Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, um, Jocko Willink, in terms of manhood— I think weirdly, though they are not evangelical and certainly not conservative evangelical and are going to have numerous things, depending on the figure, that clash with the theology a person like I am going to hold, they, they end up saying some helpful things about how to be a man or how to be a woman. Here we're talking more about manhood. And so that's why I think Peterson and others have gotten such a following, uh, both in the broader culture, but then also to some degree in a kind of clandestine, quiet, not approved by gatekeepers, but yet very much going on way where you've got college students listening to those kind of voices or when it comes to politics and culture, you know, like a Ben Shapiro, there's a whole kind of dark web out there that is very much consulted because it is going to the places that our culture has cordoned off and said, no one can talk about this. No one can define this. You're not really supposed to define what manhood is and what manhood isn't. You're not really supposed to talk about the differences between the sexes. Even in evangelical circles, to some degree, you're not really supposed to call men to be aggressive in a God-centered, woman-protecting, child-caring-for way. You're not even really supposed to do that very much. Well, some of those figures that we've mentioned do that sort of thing, Jeff. And for that reason, they, they have drawn a major following, again, not just from a secular audience, but also from some Christians. So I'm going on here, but my, part of my burden is to not just do high-flown theology for people who want to read it, uh, but to really get into the nitty-gritty and help men and women know how to be a man of God and a woman of God by the power of the gospel for the glory of God that's really where this all is supposed to go. It's not just supposed to be ideas that we think about and debate. It's supposed to take flesh and shape. But all too often, our discussion of manhood and womanhood goes to the controversial issues and then shuts down. Well, that that uh, that desire you have to kind of incarnate this uh, this teaching that you're talking about is why I'm thankful you're directing the Center for Public Theology, brother. Can Can I circle back around to some of those names there? Sure. Would you say for Christians that we should see them 
and this may be too broad, so feel free to say, ah, I can't really do that. But are, are we looking at a Peterson as an enemy, a co-belligerent, or a friend? Again, a really thoughtful question. This is the kind of thing I spend a lot of time driving in my car on highways, you know, thinking about. Um, I would say generally co-belligerent with like a Peterson. Uh, I've read a fair bit of Peterson, listened to some Peterson stuff, watched the documentary that was on Amazon Prime, has been on Amazon Prime. Uh, about Peterson. I find him a fascinating figure. He's similar to, in certain ways, a Roger Scruton, uh, the great conservative philosopher who died this last year. And he's also similar in some ways to a Ben Shapiro. Um, and uh, I, I find these, these different figures helpful on certain cultural issues and also willing to line things out and speak directly in certain areas that is helpful. There are there are whole areas, though, of of thought where I would very much break with them, including <laughs> in, in a kind of presuppositional way, in a principial way. In other words, they have a different worldview than I do. And that's a big deal to me. Nonetheless, I do believe in what is called co-belligerence in the public square, rightly done, carefully outlined. And so when a Peterson, let's say, let's just take let's just break this down. When a Peterson is, for example, talking about meaningful differences between the sexes, and then is offering at least some guidance to men and to women along those lines and is trying to help people understand, eh, as one matter, workplace dynamics, that's good. That's not a bad thing in my view. Does that mean I can just turn my brain off when Jordan Peterson is talking about those matters and, and, and accept everything he's saying? No, it does not. It definitely does not. But it does mean that there's a lot that he says that is going to resonate, I think, in these areas uh, with the convictions of, of conservative Christians. Um, so Peterson on the veracity historically of the Christian faith, uh, not very good, not good at all. Be very careful. Peterson on the sexes, um, Peterson on, uh, the Western tradition, Peterson on the need for intellectual diversity. Now we're getting a little further afield of our, our topic, but those are, those are areas where I'm, I'm reading a figure like him. I'm tracking in many ways, and to some degree, I'm thankful for his voice. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that answer. Um, I'm curious, you know, there may be a listener who's hearing this saying, well, now why in the world would we go to pagans even to, to kind of honor, uh, honor their insights? I, I think I hear you doing something like what Dante did with Virgil in uh, his Commedia, right? That uh, there there is some evidence of goodness here. Would you locate what you're seeing Peterson rightly recognizing in... God's, you know, common grace, Imago Dei, uh, or is he being helped by, say, the ancient Western tradition? How how would you sort those things out where, hey, all of a sudden this unbeliever has some stuff to offer? Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say with a Peterson, with a, a philosopher like a Roger Scruton, yes, uh, I, I do affirm that very common formulation that all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. God has not created a world where only Christians are able to reason. He hasn't. Everybody is able to think, at least to some degree, um, uh, every, every rightly functioning human being is able to think. Are the noetic effects of the fall real? They are absolutely real. So I affirm them fully with the Reformed tradition. And yet you got to be careful. And that's why there's such a, a vigorous discussion, for example, uh, in Dutch theology over the meaning of common grace. What is common grace? <laughs> How far does it extend? 
how much can the unbeliever know? How much, therefore, in the public square, as an outworking, can we partner with unbelievers? That is a topic for not just one podcast, but a whole set of podcasts. Sure. Nonetheless, I'll say it this way. I'll just say a couple framing words, okay? I'm Van Tillian in that I believe that the only way to know the world is to know God. Uh, and, and so true knowledge begins only with Christian faith uh, and therefore the presupposition that God and his word is revelation itself, is truth itself. So that's where you are going to know truly, only when you know Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Nonetheless, there is real interface uh, with fellow human beings who are made in the image of God, who have been given the ability to reason, and in certain ways are not far from the kingdom of God, as we read in the in the book of Acts. Um, so there is a real ability to think for the unbeliever, and there's even an ability to think on a spectrum, better or worse. There are even unbelievers who can point out things to us as Christians. Um, nonetheless, in acknowledging these realities, we're not in any way softening the Christian truth claim and the need to know Christ uh, in order to know reality as it is truly constituted by God. Just for the listeners who maybe are looking for a bit of a bibliography, when you're talking about the Dutch tradition, we're talking about Abraham Kuyper, maybe, um, I don't know, would Bavink fall into that? Who do you have in mind when you talk about the Dutch debating uh, over over uh, common grace? Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly who I'm thinking of, Jeff. I'm thinking of Abraham Kuyper, who's really the progenitor of that vigorous 19th, late 19th and, and then 20th century discussion among Dutch theologians. Uh, Kuyper and then Bavink. Van Til enters in, um, Hep enters in in the Netherlands. Uh, there are various figures at Calvin Seminary who are, who are not as well known today, who have their own uh, stake in that in that discussion. But yeah, the heavy hitters would be Kuiper uh, and Bavink and Van Til, um, and they all have their own unique contributions here. Um, and I, I don't read them monolithically. You shouldn't in theological terms. Nonetheless, they are they are the ones who who, as I read you know, recent recent theology and, and theology of culture do the most to, to try to figure out how far common grace goes. You can underplay common grace such that, again, almost you're in a place where Christians alone think, and that doesn't really make sense. But you could also overplay common grace such that, like I talked about earlier, you can almost seed your thinking. You can almost say, okay, unbeliever, teach me here. And they do, and that's all you need to know. In my view, even when you're learning from an unbeliever, you need to take that that learning, and you need to uh, effectively put it back through the grinder <laughs> mm-hmm. from a Christian vantage point. So, so let me make it practical quickly. If I'm reading Roger Scruton on architecture, and he's making a case against deconstru- deconstructionist postmodern architecture, and I'm vigorously agreeing with him. And he's arguing for more classical vision of architecture that's definitely friendly to contemporary design, but is classically rooted. As a believer, I'm going to take that case, but I'm not going to stop with 
oh, look at this beautiful tradition of architecture. Let's try to preserve it. I'm going to then say, well, wait a minute. The reason why I as a, a Christian would have any stake in architecture or the category of beauty most broadly is because my God is a God of beauty. So I can learn from Scruton, especially his critique. And But then I need to, I need to reprogram all this from a distinctively Christian vantage point with God at the center, God at the beginning, God at the end. That is excellent. So, and, and, and you're such a helpful guest in that you also gave me a great transition there to something I wanted to kind of bring down to practicality on um, on what we were talking about earlier, where you said you know evangelicals have a pretty good ideology, maybe, but we need to we need to flesh out masculinity a bit more. And so you've given us some work there. If if I if if someone listening to this is a local church leader, they're one of the men God has raised up to lead in the local church. You cited John uh, John Powell teaching people to change oil. Mm. What could local church leaders do outside of the pulpit? Now, I'm I'm a preacher. I believe God accomplishes His work through the preaching of the Word. So I'm not denigrating that. But Amen. Amen. Out outside of the pulpit, what could we do to kind of put flesh on uh, masculinity? I think that is r- probably the missing element today, Jeff. I think that's a fantastically important matter. I actually think that what what we keep talking about with this anecdote, beautiful anecdote of John Powell teaching these young college guys who have no idea how to change oil. I think that's exactly where we need to be. I, I don't in any way mean we move away from theological and exegetical instruction. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what you're saying. Um, absolutely agree that we do exegetical theology from the pulpit that builds into a theological worldview, right? But then that worldview doesn't stay in our brain. God didn't make us hovering brains. He made us people who do have to change our oil and who do have to get a haircut and determine how long our hair should be and who do need to get outside and exercise and work with our hands, at least to some degree, uh, and, and who do need to lead, protect, and provide in a Christian home. But how are we going to do that if we don't train young men in what that looks like? Jeff, I think a lot of us are hamstrung today. I think a lot of us are paralyzed. We're okay with putting down a Bible verse, but in a really strange way, the younger uh, generation that loves the gospel, and I include myself here, is is getting a little bit proof texty. What mm. I mean by that is people think the only thing you can say about biblical manhood and womanhood is something that is directly said by a Bible verse. Well, look, that is absolutely the foundation of, of manhood and womanhood of any topic. But there's this whole biblical category that is part of the Old Testament in particular. James falls into this category in the New Testament, but it's, it's wisdom literature. Wisdom literature includes tons of biblical principles, but the very nature of wisdom literature is to set you on a God-glorifying journey, such that where there actually isn't a Bible verse, directly speaking, to your situation, you act in a, Lord willing, biblical way. So I find in a strange form a kind of proof textiness today with regard to the sexes, where I guess I'm technically able to say the husband is head of the wife in evangelical circles, but then I'm not really supposed to put any bones on that, Jeff. Mm, yeah. 
we need to put bones on that. And, and, and so if you've been a father or a mother, for example, uh, for, for, you know, even a matter of weeks, you know that you have to make lots of decisions that are not necessarily in every case directly answered by a, a verse or a passage. Some of them certainly are. Some of them directly are not. And so this is a, a longer way here of saying, I think the church needs to clear its throat and find its courage. And I think men and women alike need to reach out to the younger generations and need to disciple them. And everybody needs to understand that our foundation must be exegetical and then theological, but that we also are going to have to use a whole heaping dose of wisdom. And that's good. The Bible doesn't say young men shall learn to change oil. But what John Powell was doing in that instance is he was trying to to, to communicate the biblical imperative that men take responsibility for themselves, that men lead themselves in order that they can then lead others. We could say a thousand other examples of that kind of need, but hopefully by now the point, the point can stand. The only way you form biblical men and women is not by citing passages. That's constitutive. But then you have to go beyond that and, and flesh this out and not be scared of fleshing it out. Yeah, I know in my own life, my father wasn't um, a believer when I was growing up. He he taught me to change oil. Um, but there was a, a gentleman around his same age at the church who would kind of let some of us hang out around him. And we never looked at a theological treatise, but uh, he he showed me what it was like to love his wife and kids. I, I mean, to this day, I can remember where I watched him lose his temper and then mm. take account for that and start apologizing to people. And I, I, I honestly had no idea how Christian men were supposed to lose their temper. And I'm thankful to God to this day that I got to see him do that. And I, I really wonder if some of this stuff can't be fixed by proximity. Just older men, younger men, go do whatever you're doing in your normal Saturday schedule together. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Tragically, some churches, though, aren't even trying for this. They see it as success when they have only young people or largely young people in their congregation. Or, or this is a, an alternate challenge. The church is kind of set in its ways, and it doesn't end up feeling like, you know, a congregation that's centered on the Word of God. It can feel more like a, a, a storehouse for a set of Bible-informed traditional ways of living. Hmm. In reality, we have to avoid both of those problems, uh, not that everything's, you know, this perfectly calibrated middle way. And, and yet, we do have to recognize that there's all sorts of things that need to be taught in a local church that are not just scripture and theology, but that depends on discipleship. And I, I think we are justified in saying that discipleship is really the missing element in so much evangelical life. But discipleship is where so many, it's where things really click into place, isn't it? Such that even if you don't have somebody who is, let's say, modeling both the, the, the theological instruction and the lived discipleship, if you're getting the theology from the pulpit, Lord willing, and then you're also learning biblical manhood, maybe from a guy who who doesn't read 200 theology books a year, but is a strong man of God and pursuing holiness and self-sacrificially loving his wife and raising his children well and working really hard to be the provider for his family and trying to discipline himself and eat in a self-controlled way and exercise such that he's a protector to the strongest degree he can be of his family, that's doing really well. And we need to not over-fancify 
discipleship of men and discipleship of women. We need to not set expectations of our disciplers. I'm speaking to the younger generation here that all of them be, you know, R.C. Sproul or Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, that that's not reasonable. Well, you have been so generous with your time, and this is this is a treasure trove. I I wonder if I could ask you one more question, kind of about how complementarianism is being pulled in our day, and um, I, sure. I'll, I'll give it to you, and you can tell me if you've got time for it or not. So with complementarianism today, it looks to me like there's a group in the evangelical church who would say, yeah, what you're calling, what you guys have tried to sell us as complementarianism is is just patriarchy. And mm-hmm. we've seen through it. We're on top of this. The Bible doesn't affirm that. I also see a bunch of people in evangelicalism who say, yeah, complementarianism is far too weak. We need to go to a straightforward patriarchy. Mm. If that question interests you, would you tell me what you would say to, to the first group and the second group? Uh, it does interest me tremendously. I don't know that uh, patriarchy is the precise term I would use, but I do understand that a lot of what somebody who uses the term patriarchy is going to mean they see the Bible calling for. Mm. Uh, that person probably has at least a good bit of agreement with me. Uh, I, I think that there are some issues where those who would claim the word patriarchy um, have have pushed things a little far. Uh, and, and so there are some concern points um, with certain elements uh, of, of that of that group. L- let's get away from the buzzwords for a minute. OK, mm, OK. I am all for what I have called it in print and elsewhere. Uh, not that anybody really cares. Uh, a maximalist complementarianism. Uh, I, I am for perhaps an even an even stronger theological way of saying this. I am for creation order. Uh, I am for nature. We were talking about that earlier, Romans one twenty six, which isn't referring to a righteous nature or a sinful nature. The Bible also refers to that in different places. It's actually referring to God's constitutive creational design of men and women of human beings. There there is a right way to act sexually because of nature, uh, a husband with a wife exclusively, anything outside of that covenantal sexual activity is unrighteous. That's what Paul is saying in Romans one twenty six and elsewhere. So I'm, I look, I am all for creation order. And if you can affirm the phrase creation order, Jeff, honestly, the other terms, maybe they matter to some degree, but they don't matter as much. Because if you affirm creation order, now you have uh, men being constituted the head of the home, uh, now you have women being called to submit to their husband, not in sin, but in, in all things, according to Ephesians 5, outside of sin. Y- you, have, you have fathers and mothers being the authority of their children. Um, you have men being the ones who have the responsibility not just to take the position or title of elder or pastor, but to shepherd the church, teach the church, train the church, protect the church. We could go on here, but that's all part of how I understand the whole Bible case, biblical theology of creation order. And that's what I'm for. Let me say a quick comment. The previous debate about complementarity and egalitarianism more in the late 80s and 90s, Jeff, was around so-called gender roles. That was a really important conversation to have. And um, there was a lot of food for thought from all sides. There were a lot of heroic contributions on the complementarian side uh, that have ab- absolutely laid the groundwork for what has gone after. But actually, 
you can't terminate that conversation with gender roles. I think what has been exposed in America with the rise and rapid spread of LGBT thinking, ideology, and policy is that you have to go beyond gender roles and you have to actually talk about creation order. You have to actually talk about God's design of men and women. It's not to say that the the earlier generation didn't necessarily do that uh, or was soft on that, but it is to say we are being forced today to either affirm, I'll, I'll use my term I just was using, creation order as constitutive Uh, laid out in the Word of God, witnessed to and attested in general revelation, and called for on the part of all people, but especially the church, or we don't affirm it. And if you don't affirm creation order, and your, your understanding, for example, of church government or who holds the pastorate isn't informed by creation order, I have, I have hopes for you and you holding to biblical teaching on, on the roles issue but I have very little confidence for you. That's super helpful. So speaking of things that are super helpful, I picked up your book, Reenchanting Humanity, uh, Theology of Mankind, uh, pretty close to when it came out. And I read the introduction and immediately went to the chapter on sexuality. And I wish for, you know, if I had a, if I had a magic switch, I would flip it for our listeners that they could all read the book and could just do what I just said, start with that chapter on sexuality, because I think you do such a good job of laying out. Before we get to questions about transgenderism or homosexuality, things that are kind of hot button, you you lay out a beautiful vision for what I think you're calling creational order there. And so uh, listeners, go get that book. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, if you, like me, uh, this conversation is whetting your appetite for more from Dr. Strand, go get Reenchanting Humanity and read it. Uh, but you, you know, you also have some books out recently that do touch on these hot button, but also pastoral issues. So I'm thinking about three volumes. What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? What does the Bible teach about lust? And what does the Bible teach about transgenderism that you wrote with Gavin Peacock? I, I confess, I wasn't aware of those till you tweeted about them today. Those are widely available now. They can, you can go to Amazon or wherever and, and pick those up. Yeah, thank you. Yes, they are. They're widely available. They came out. um, When did they come out? My brain is fuzzy because of COVID. They came out in the spring. Okay. uh, I think late April. And uh, and so I I, I so appreciate your kind words there. Yes. And just very quickly, reenchanting humanity is is trying to to be that kind of serious theological engagement of anthropological issues, including a teleological creation order driven understanding of manhood or womanhood that shows that. We don't just have divine design, but we have we have divine design that yields joy when it is realized through faith in Christ. And then, yes, the, the, the three little books, What Does the Bible Teach About Lust, Homosexuality, and Transgenderism? Those are more readable. Those are more accessible. They're short. Uh, they're little books. And uh, hopefully they, they can reach, you know, into college groups or discipleship groups, small groups. And they can hopefully strengthen the church to understand that you shouldn't follow your heart, that if it is sin to do it, it's sin to desire it, that you shouldn't embrace not just gay behavior or a transgender uh, 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 presentation, but you shouldn't embrace a homosexual identity or a transgender identity. And you should fight any desires along those lines, just as we all must fight sinful desire. So, man, we've put a lot on the table here, but hopefully those those books can help in some small way. Yeah, well, listener, I'll put links to uh, those in the show notes as well. Just as a pastor, 
those look like books that I want laying around in common spaces at my church with, you know, with everybody knowing, take those home, read them. Let's give them away to each other as we read them and then go have, uh, go have conversations around them. So, uh, again, I'll put links. Thank you. Dr. Strand, thanks so much for your time. Uh, how generous you've been. I know that you're active on Twitter. The handle is O S T R A C H A N. If, if a listener is not familiar with how your last name is spelled, um, would you point listeners anywhere other than Twitter to kind of keep up with what what's going on with you? That's kind. That's very kind. Uh, yeah, that's a good place to go. Um, I run a center that you mentioned earlier called the Center for Public Theology here at Midwestern Seminary. So uh, I, I write some articles, and I, I actually have a podcast as well called uh, City of God. It's on iTunes. Uh, I think it's just about on Spotify. Uh, so City of God is the podcast. And then the Center for Public Theology, the address is cpt.mbts.edu. Um, so those are a couple places to, to go. Okay. Well, I will, again, listener, I will put all that in the show notes so you'll have easy access to it. Uh, Dr. Strand, thanks again. I uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Keep up all the good work. Thank you, Jeff, and great questions. Great discussion, man. Thank you. Much appreciated. All right. Thanks to Dr. Strand for taking time to join us on the CRV podcast. Don't forget, you can find links to his books in the show notes for this episode. If you have enjoyed the podcast, we would appreciate you leaving a review on your favorite podcasting platform, as well as telling a friend about the podcast. Thanks again for listening. For all the folks at CRV, this is Jeff Wright wishing you all the best in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.